Welcome to a nonfiction story cast about people in Seattle who built churches and how they did it. I'm Cindy Safranoff. I'm the author, and this is Dedication, building the Seattle branches of Mary Baker Eddy's church, a centennial story. Part 2, Episode 11, Washington Bicentennial, 1932. Elizabeth H. Ferry, a member of Fourth Church of Christ Scientists, Seattle, wrote a letter to the board proposing the display of an American flag on the auditorium wall behind the readers for Washington's birthday on February 22nd. The year 1932 was the bicentennial for George Washington, America's first president. Mrs. Ferry's proposal was approved by the board, and Mr. Fritchie was appointed to consult with member Colonel David E. Dow on how to display the flag properly. A few days later, the board at Seventh Church also approved display of a flag behind their readers. The board at Third Church decided to display a flag on the exterior of their church. February 22nd fell on a Monday that year, and the board of directors of the Mother Church, the first Church of Christ Scientist in Boston, announced its decision to hold special memorial services in remembrance of the ideals and accomplishments of George Washington. In the January 16th issue of the Christian Science Sentinel, they cited the fact that special services were held on Lincoln's birthday in 1907, 1908, 1909, and 1910 with the approval of Mrs. Eddy as precedent for their decision. An additional statement in the February 6th Sentinel stated that the founder, Mary Baker Eddy, had indicated to the Board of Directors that Christian science churches may properly respond to proclamations and requests from government authorities to hold special religious services or observances, similar to the Thanksgiving Day service. The George Washington Bicentennial Commission had asked the Christian Science Church to participate in the national commemoration. Like on Thanksgiving Day, this service would include a special address appropriate for the occasion. Furthermore, the directors pointed to Eddie's significant inclusion of George Washington in her 1899 address to the Christian Science Church in Concord, New Hampshire, a branch church she was actively involved with when she lived in Concord. She wrote, In the annals of our denomination, this church becomes historic having completed its organization February 22nd, Washington's birthday. Memorable date, all unthought of till the day had passed. Then we beheld the omen, religious liberty, the father of the universe and the father of our nation in concurrence. Concurrence with significant dates seemed important to Eddie who founded her first organization, the Christian Science Association, on July 4, 1876, the centennial of America's Declaration of Independence. And she delivered several important sermons in later years on Independence Day. Coincidentally, 
Eddie initially founded her church in Boston in 1879, the same year Congress designated Washington's birthday a national holiday. The board of directors invited branch churches to join with them in holding a special service on Monday, February 22nd at 10.45 a.m., or on another day or time, as long as it did not take the place of a regular church service. The subject of the sermon was to be Love for God and Man, the Universal Ideal. The sermon would explore how love for God and man is essential to unselfish service, allows demonstration of true self-government, ends wars, and encourages international unity and shows the potential for universal spiritual freedom. The central Bible passage, the golden text, was from Psalms. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Psalms 37.23 The citations from the Bible and the Christian Science textbook that comprised the special lesson sermon were published in the Sentinel, and also printed in pamphlet form, available in bulk from the Christian Science Publishing Society, so everyone attending the services could have a copy for their own individual spiritual study. In Seattle, consistent with their emphasis on local unity that had developed over the years, the branch church boards met to consider the invitation and decided to hold Washington Memorial Services all at 11 a.m. on Monday. The fact that Christian Science churches would be participating received special mention in the Seattle Times, its own separate headline and article on a nearly full page of brief notices about George Washington-themed sermons, services, devotions, and other special religious events. All of the faithful in Seattle, denominational differences notwithstanding, were joining in mutual celebration of the Bicentennial. The Catholic Bishop of Seattle, Rev. Edward J. O'Day, urged churches that had bell towers to ring the bells 200 times at 10 a.m. to announce the start of the citywide commemoration events. The Christian scientists would not participate in the bell ringing, since none of their church edifices had bells. The Washington Bicentennial was established by an act of Congress. The commemoration was many years in the planning. Washington had long since earned recognition as father and founder of the United States of America because, as President Herbert Hoover stated in address before a joint session of Congress, he contributed more to its origins than any other man to the building of human freedom and ordered liberty, not alone upon this continent, but upon all continents. President Hoover's words to the nation were printed in local newspapers. The ceremonial of commemorating the founder of our country is one of the most solemn that either an individual or nation ever performs. Carried out in high spirit, it can be made one of the most fruitful and enriching. It is a thing to be done in the mood of prayer, of communing with the spiritual springs of patriotism and of devotion to country. 
It is an occasion for looking back to our past, for taking stock of our present, and in light of both, setting the compass for our future. We look back that we may recall those qualities of Washington's character which made him great, those principles of national conduct which he laid down, and by which we have come thus far. We meet to reestablish our contact with them, renew our fidelity to them. In 1932, Washington's birthday was the start of an official nine-month period of tribute and gratitude to this man whom we revere above all other Americans, during which Americans were encouraged to commemorate his birth in every home, every school, every church, and every community under our flag. The commemoration period officially ended in November on Thanksgiving Day, the National Day of Prayer. The address prepared for Christian Science Church services provided an overview of Washington's involvement in the American Revolution, with emphasis on his good character and spiritual qualities, his unselfishness, poise, and wisdom even under the most extreme pressures and his unifying influence that had greatly benefited the United States of America, not only since our nation's inception, but also throughout its history, even to the present time. The special memorial service was also held in Christian Science churches outside the United States. A letter published in the Sentinel reported on the popularity of the special service in Switzerland and its relevance to the World Disarmament Conference, a convention of delegates from 60 countries deliberating on how to prevent another world war being held in Geneva at that time. Indeed, as stated in the Seattle Times, the attention of the world was concentrated this year upon the life and works of George Washington. In Seattle, new historical discoveries and analysis of the first president's life were featured in local newspapers. An extensive exhibit of historical documents too precious to risk being handled and heirlooms held by his descendants was on display at the Spanish ballroom of the Olympic Hotel. Washington's most famous speeches and portraits were reprinted in newspapers. There were radio programs on his influence, essay contests for students, and Spirit of 76 costume pageants. The Sons of the American Revolution organized a banquet for veterans at the Civic Auditorium. The Daughters of the American Revolution hosted ceremonies at a tree planting of an original Washington elm at the George Washington Memorial section of Evergreen Memorial Park. In Karkeek Park, Boy Scouts planted two black walnut trees grown from a tree on the grounds of Washington's home in Mount Vernon, Virginia. There was a parade on 2nd Avenue. But perhaps the highest profile event in Seattle was the opening of the George Washington Memorial Bridge. The new bridge was by far the highest and most impressive ever built in Seattle. The nearly 3,000-foot steel truss span over Lake Union 
held special significance as the final link in the Pacific Highway connecting Canada and Mexico, U.S. Route 99, which in the city of Seattle street grid was called Aurora Avenue. Instead of cutting a silk ribbon, a log of Douglas fir laid across the roadway was sawed in half. Government officials from Canada and Mexico took part in the ceremony at 2 o'clock p.m. President Herbert Hoover telegraphed a signal to unfurl international flags over the bridge. Then the American flag was released in the wind to the fanfare of 12 trumpets. Then a bomb exploded 500 feet in the air. There was a 21-gun salute from a battery of the National Guard on the hillside above the bridge, answered by naval ships in the lake below. Military planes soared above. Fireboats shot lake water into the air. And an army band played the national anthem. A company from the Sons of the American Revolution wearing Revolutionary War-style uniforms, lined the sides of the 70-foot-wide roadway as cars began driving across the bridge for the first time. An estimated 15,000 people attended the bridge dedication locally, accompanied by a national audience listening through radio broadcast. The Washington Bicentennial was an upbeat moment of civic unity at the start of a presidential election year associated with a significant battle of political ideologies. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was mounting a campaign against President Hoover. Roosevelt, a Democrat, proposed to save the country from depression through a New Deal of expanded government and social welfare programs, while Hoover, a Republican, defended American individualism as being the surest path to progress. Washington state had long been a Republican stronghold, but political sentiment was shifting, giving Democrats new opportunities. The Christian Science Monitor endorsed Hoover. But for Christian scientists, which candidate to support in this pivotal election was ultimately a matter for each to decide individually. They had as reference in the First Church of Christ Scientist and Miscellany by Mary Baker Eddy, a reprint of a 1908 article from the Boston Post. Politics. Mrs. Mary Baker Eddy has always believed that those who are entitled to vote should do so, and she has also believed that in such matters no one should seek to dictate the actions of others. In reply to a number of requests for an expression of her political views, she has given out this statement. I am asked, what are your politics? I have none, in reality, other than to help support a righteous government, to love God supremely and my neighbor as myself. Christian Science Church members may or may not have been divided in their political party affiliations in 1932, but they were certainly united in their belief that ultimately, Christian science was the best cure for all ills, including every problem facing the country. This was a point made publicly in Seattle shortly before Washington's birthday through a Christian science lecture called Christian Science, Humanity's Liberator by Charles V. Wynne, hosted by Seventh Church. 
Excerpts from the lecture were printed in the Seattle Times. What the world most needed was freedom, as explained in the article. Considering the state of the world at that time, the unrest, dissatisfaction, failure, intolerable burdens, and despair of humanity, the best way, the only way, to attain true freedom was through the understanding and practice of Christian science. Mr. Wynne told the audience, Those who look to the human mind, human will, human ways, and material methods for deliverance will look in vain. Jesus Christ, by successfully overcoming every adverse condition, proved the simple truth Mary Baker Eddy explained in the Christian Science textbook. Love is the liberator. With the high purpose of advancing humanity always in mind, even during this period of economic turmoil, at least one branch church in the country had built an edifice during the Depression. On the night of October 29, 1929, while most people were in shock over the stock market crash, the members of Third Church of Christ scientist Dallas, Texas, voted to start their building project. They were able to get a mortgage loan from a hard-nosed banker at a time when few banks were willing to loan to churches. This Dallas church laid a cornerstone on November 27, 1930. They discovered that because of the slow economy, they were able to hire the finest craftsmen in the area at bargain rates. Their new $215,000 Romanesque-style edifice was completed in August 1931. Church-building projects also continued to make progress in Seattle. Shortly after Washington's birthday, 11th Church began looking for property on the east side of Green Lake. They found a high, sightly building site at a bargain price. Free with payment of accumulated overdue taxes and assessments. Their building site was comprised of two separate lots in separate ownership, each with complications requiring very cumbersome negotiations, and both lots were required to make a usable building site. The board found itself often confronted with many perplexing situations but most everything was handled during the nine months of the Washington Bicentennial period. The church board cited as their inspiration the golden text for the George Washington service. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. A significant public event took place that year on June 12th at the University of Washington. The baccalaureate commencement address was given by Albert Eaton Lombard, who the Seattle Times described as a prominent Christian science leader. Mr. Lombard was Christian Science Committee on Publication for Southern California. His address, entitled Looking Upward, was described as inspirational in nature. It was heard by 2,000 university students and many hundreds of Seattle residents. An excerpt was printed in the Christian Science Sentinel. Lombard said that looking upward does not mean blind optimism, 
but an uplifted viewpoint that looks understandingly to a fundamental truth, to a high ideal, or above all, to a supreme power that guides and sustains all right activities. He equated this looking upward to prayer. He encouraged the class of 1932 to look to Jesus as their model and be confident in Christ's promise, as recorded in the Bible, Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. Lombard's overtly religious message was in line with the tone of the whole event. The graduation ceremony, which included all the annual campus commencement traditions and had Professor Edmund S. Meany, Washington's grand old man, in the vanguard of the procession, was practically an interfaith religious service. University President Dr. M. Lyle Spencer read from the Bible. The invocation was delivered by Reverend Marion E. Bolin, pastor of the University Baptist Church, and the benediction pronounced by Reverend Harry L. Meyer, pastor of the University Congregational Church. The Seattle Times put the graduation event at the University Athletic Pavilion on the front page of a special pictorial section showing the huge American flag behind the stage. The selection of Lombard for the commencement address marked the new level of prominence that Christian science now held in Seattle and the whole world. In recent years, the committees on publication had reported a marked abatement of critical and unfriendly comment on Christian science in the press, and a considerable increase in reprints and quotes from the Christian Science Monitor. Christian Science was no longer at the embattled fringes of society, but was now at its celebrated center during this focus on unifying American values. Around Thanksgiving Day, there was another discussion at Fourth Church regarding symbols of patriotism. Mrs. Hawley wrote a letter on behalf of Fourth Church to the board of directors in Boston about using as a hymn the former national anthem, America, by Samuel Francis Smith, which begins, My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing, land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside let freedom ring. The anthem had a lesser-known extraverse that was written by the composer for Washington's Centennial in 1832. Our joyful hearts today their grateful tribute pay, happy and free, after our toils and fears, after our blood and tears, strong with our hundred years, O God, to Thee. The reply from the clerk of the Mother Church was not recorded in the official minutes, nor did they mention whether or not the Church used the former national anthem at services. Neither was the outcome recorded of an earlier board discussion at Eleventh Church over the idea of ending the prelude at the Thanksgiving service with the new national anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner, that resulted in a telegram exchange with Boston. 
Normally, the specifics of hymns and preludes was not discussed at the board level of branch churches. But these internal discussions show an unusual stirring of thought about music at church services at this time. Eventually, the year 1932 would be remembered by Christian scientists far more widely for another musical innovation that occurred that year than for the special services for the Washington Bicentennial. Nevertheless, it was a monumental year for many reasons. At a time when American values were being reaffirmed and Americans everywhere were looking to infrastructure projects, like the George Washington Memorial Bridge in Seattle and the massive Hoover Dam construction project in the Southwest for progress. Christian scientists were focused on their own infrastructure project, the new Christian Science Publishing House in Boston, which, on Washington's birthday, was just starting to be constructed. Thanks for listening to Dedication by me, Cindy Safranoff. All events and characters in this story are as true and accurate as the available sources. All opinions are mine. To support and learn more about this groundbreaking research project and read my writing, visit cindysafranoff.com.